0: From Philippians 3, 7 through 14. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish In Christ Jesus. If you haven't picked up one of the books uh, for the Lenten series, the Passion Book that's out in the Welcome center. I want to invite you to grab one of those this evening. All of the messages throughout Lent will be tied into that series. And it's funny because most people don't think about Easter as we do as Christians. In fact, many people today, I've been reading some articles and looking around the world around us, and many people don't even know whether Christ was a historical person. Or not, they're beginning to wonder if he really was a historical person. If what we see in Scripture really happened, and as we enter into God's Word this evening, we're going to look at Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. And I want to leave you with a thought as we enter into Lent. I want to I want to give you something going into this. It's not that we have less evidence or even contradictory evidence. For Jesus' life and for all the historicity and all the context, the the uh, archaeological research and the, the the different manuscripts, we have thousands of manuscripts from the Old and New Testament. It's not that any of that has been disproven. I think, in truth, it's not that we have less evidence for Jesus' life, his death, or even his resurrection. We simply have less tolerance for what his life, death, and resurrection mean for us, and for our lives this day. And that's why times like Lent, that's why what we do this evening is so important. So let's take a look this evening briefly at Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. And he came out, that's Jesus, and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is a hard passage of scripture because Jesus is hurting in his Friends, frankly, they, they let them down. As we enter into the passion, that's what we're going to be looking at throughout Lent, the passion is for us as Christians, unlike the world, as I said earlier, it's the central event of human history. For us, the bloodstained cross and the empty tomb, they're everything. They're life-changing, and they're, they're meant to be life-changing. They're meant to be so. The passion for us is emblematic of the life we're called to live and the hope We await when Christ comes again. And this year in Lent, we're going to look at this passion, this important thing, because it it is vital to our faith. It reminds us, though our lives will be restored in the then yet to come, in the here and now, we are called to carve out time and really consider Christ's own life and His death and ultimately, his resurrection and what it means for us today, tomorrow, and forever. So tonight, I want to ask you a simple question. What does, angli- what does anguish look like? And what does it feel like? It's no surprise that in Jesus' final days, we know the passion, we know the story and what happens. It begins with a scene of personal anguish. Jesus is in the garden and he's praying. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to think about it this way. If you walk down the street and you see someone you know, or you go to the supermarket, you run into somebody you know, a friend, a family member, somebody from church, somebody you grew up with, whoever that would be for you, someone you care for deeply. You see them at the doctor's office, wherever it is, and just by the look you see on their face, you know something is wrong. You may not even see them. I know for my wife, for Mandy, a couple years ago when she found out she had some things going on with her health, she called me and the minute I answered the phone and she began to speak, just the sound of her voice was enough to let me know that I need to get my coat and get in the car and get going. You've probably all had a situation like that. I think everybody has experienced one of those an unexpected moment. And maybe like me, and you can assume in my situation, it's someone you know, and in my case it's Manny, and she's someone I know who is stronger and more flexible and capable and can handle more than a lot of people I know. And when I heard her voice and when I saw her face, I just knew how anguish feels when you see it when you experience it, when it's someone else, when it happens to you. We all know what sin does. Think about a time in your own life when that happened maybe. Maybe you're already doing that. You're thinking of some time when you knew what anguish looked like, what it felt like. As much as I love my wife and as much as I respect her, the story we read here in Luke 22 reminds us that Jesus, he was a person like no one else. Like no other, Jesus Was different. And he had a mission beyond our imaginations and beyond really what anybody's expectations were. Jesus had a unique calling, a unique mission. His disciples, they'd seen him do incredible, miraculous things. He had taught authoritatively. He had made the promises from hundreds and even thousands of years in the Old Testament come to life. It was powerful. He brought hope. He brought healing. He brought life in every way. He raised Someone from the dead. God had clearly come near. But yet other people like Judas, who Jesus had just announced at dinner, was going to betray him, they they didn't like what Jesus was delivering. He wasn't the kind of Messiah they expected. He wasn't the kind they wanted. He wasn't the kind they accepted. Jesus had confessed that Judas would betray him, and he took his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and they went to Gethsemane to pray. But his closest friends, a stone's throw away, could not stay awake. And so we see in Luke twenty-two forty-five, 45, they were simply overwhelmed. They were exhausted mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. His disciples were sleeping for sorrow. They couldn't take it. They were overwhelmed. And let's be honest, when they fell asleep, they really did let Jesus down. He needed them now more than ever, and they just were beyond their capacity. Maybe that's how you are coming into Lent this year. I don't know where you are. I'm pretty tired. Maybe you're in the same boat. Maybe that's how you feel tonight. I don't know. We all have times when shutting down seems like the best option. When a nap or binge watching something on Netflix or a, a good book or a walk in the woods or whatever it is, literally, literally anything seems better than coming to God. When literally anything feels better than praying. In fact, you don't even know what to say. When you try to pray, if you've ever been in those situations, maybe you don't even feel like you can I think that's where Jesus' disciples were. Anything can seem easier, simpler than prayer. And Jesus had set that example during his ministry that prayer matters, that presence matters. He was involved in people's lives intimately, and yet he would draw away to be in his Father's presence and pray. It mattered. But here, unlike those other times when Jesus prays, he does not experience comfort. He does not experience encouragement like he normally had in the other times. If you look at the New Testament, we understand that prayer is something we should be doing. Seeking God's face is continual. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 commands us that we are to pray without ceasing. We know in Scripture and the Gospels, Jesus prayed at least 25 times. And he prayed regularly. He went off to be In his father's presence. And we have the words he prayed recorded at least seven or eight times in scripture. But here, the words recorded in Luke 22 are different. Here, Jesus is facing the shadow of the cross, his passion, and the burden of sin that we could never bear is now right in front of him. He's so overwhelmed, he's sweating what seemed to be drops of blood, we see in verse 44. And what's happening here? What's overwhelming him is something beyond our comprehension. What can overwhelm the Son of God who feeds people by the thousands, who literally raises the dead and heals the sick and commands the wind and the waves? What can make Jesus experience agony? He's so overcome that an angel comes to encourage him, to minister to him. As his friends were not able to do that. What could do this? In Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, Jesus' prayer reveals the answer. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Why does that cup matter? What is he talking about? Jesus says, remove it. We learn from Matthew and Mark that he actually cries out three separate times to his father. He says, Lord, take it away. The symbolism of the cup in the Old Testament is powerful. It's often used by the prophets of God, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, to call Israel back to God's way of living to God's blessing, to God's clear commands. He says, God says, do this and I will bless you, but if you, if you don't do this, you're going to be hurt because sin brings death. As we talked about in our series in Romans, repentance, that heart attitude where we turn from sin and fall before God, that heart attitude is essential to the Christian life. It shows that the Holy Spirit is present and active in directing and guiding us, even if we Don't feel like it sometimes. We just cry out to God. We don't even have words for it, but yet God is there. That's how God's always worked. The cup has been that powerful symbol of both God's holiness and God's provision. Passages like Isaiah 52, wake yourselves, wake yourselves, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Or Jeremiah 25, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. You see, the cup represents both God's holiness and that He is apart from sin and His wrath towards sin. You see, God is chiefly holy in His deepest. Being is one that he's not near sin, he rejects it, he despises it, he doesn't want anything to do with it, and his wrath against sin is contempt for it in any form. It's not the blind fury that maybe some of you experienced with a parent or with some other authority figure, it's not what we know. It's all about God's perfection and its holiness, and I want you to understand tonight, it's not a bad thing, it's actually part of what makes God good. And it's part of the core, the central part of his being, his holiness. And it's what makes him worth seeking. It's what makes him worth following and obeying. Why? Because God's hatred for sin is what drives him to love us so deeply and to call us out of our sin and give us a new life. It's what the Easter story is all about. Because sin destroys completely. This idea of God's justice and mercy, the reason it's a good thing, I want to give you an example of this. Just as I said earlier, when you see somebody and you know how they feel when they're hurting, I'll never forget, I was in my early 20s on a missions trip and we were like 14 hours away from our home church and I was, I think, just sitting around with some guys and talking to them and ministering to them, some of the young men from our, our youth ministry and one of the female leaders came running in and grabbed me by the arm gently and she just looked at me and she said very quietly, she said, I need you to come with me right now. And seeing what was on her face, hearing her voice, I, I knew. And she's someone I trusted. She was one of the, the moms that really ministered to the girls in our, our student ministry. And I thought to myself, we had two van loads of kids, I, you know, a bus actually and a van full of kids at this event. I, I thought, could it be this person? Could it be that person? What was going on? And she led me into a room and there sat two of the girls from our youth ministry on the floor, sobbing, curled up in a ball on the floor, just weeping. And in the minutes that followed, I learned that for the first time in their lives, they felt safe to tell someone how terribly they had been abused. It was everything you would imagine. It was was awful. As they sat there, She, the leader, put her hand on the one girl's back and said, tell Pastor Bob what you told me. And I listened for about 20 minutes as they recounted in horrifying detail what had been going on for the majority of their lives. They were 14 and 16 years old. And at that moment, I was angry. I was hurt. I was upset in the depths of my being. How could someone do something to children like that. I wondered, and as I've gone on, as I've studied God's Word, I understand that's how God feels about sin. And that's where that cup of wrath that sin brings comes from. God is holy, and He brings love and hope and light, and sin brings death and darkness and division. And yet we learn from God's Word that in our sinfulness, that cup of God's wrath, it fits right in our hands. It fits right with our lives. And that is the cup that Jesus is crying out in anguish over. It's the cup he's asking his father, if possible, take it away from me. Three times he says, God, take that from me. Because at that moment, Jesus stands in the shadow of the cross and he sees what he will endure for us at Calvary. The wrath of God Over all sin and death, the separation from God that Christ, as God's one and only Son, has never experienced. And just in that moment, he gets a glimpse of what is before him. At the edge of the passion, he stands and he looks. Jesus stands there and he looks and he knows what being forsaken and being broken and being driven from God's presence forever is. Will taste like just a sip from that cup is what he is experiencing. Just the beginning of that drives Jesus to absolute despair. If that's the future that sin offers, eternal, unrelenting hopelessness apart from God, we must thank him tonight that we will never know that. We'll never experience the full weight of our sin in the broken covenant with God that it brings. To understand the weight of that sin, we must go back not to the Garden of Gethsemane, but to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. God gives Adam and Eve blessings and power and honor and autonomy to be his royal representatives. And yet they, like us, choose death over life and wholeness. They choose separation from God over God's abiding presence. The wages of sin, as we learned last Sunday, are death with the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ. And here in the garden, we see what it costs Jesus. Just as we've all chosen sin and death, Jesus comes. And unlike us, where our disobedience brings sin and death, Jesus, his obedience before God, his willingness, his sacrifice, brings him to the place where he drinks the cup that we deserved. Filled with God's wrath. That's what we learn this evening. No wonder he begs his father for mercy. Yet at the end of that, at the end of that prayer, he ends by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Wow. Think about that. What that means, that Jesus has decided to walk in the shadow of the cross, that he makes that proclamation. And that's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy will be done. That's what we pray, and that's what we see in the passion. And the point of all this goes beyond what we see to what our souls deeply need, what we don't think about, what we often are so busy we don't recognize, how we need restoration, we need redemption, we need forgiveness, we need communion with God Almighty. And here we see Jesus alone in the garden, his closest friends asleep, just a stone's throw away. And they like us, they failed him. And yet he loves them still. He has come to rescue them, He peers into the cup of God's wrath and all the sin and darkness and death of all of us in all places and all times that it brings. And he says, I'll do it. Father, I'll do it. I will drink this cup for them, for us. And tonight as we prepare to come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you are completely loved by God, completely and utterly loved by him beyond what you could ever comprehend Jesus Christ faced the entirety of sin and death in darkness and the wrath that it brings because of how much he loved you and me and there's nothing you can do there's nothing you could ever say there's nothing that could ever happen that can separate you from that love of God in Jesus Christ the father loved you enough to send Jesus so that you could be called out of death and sin and reunited with him into a new life not just what's to come but what you have now You have hope, acceptance, and restoration. While we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And that's what we celebrate this Lenten season. That a holy God hated sin so much and yet loved us all even more. That His one and only Son consumed the cup of wrath and He replaced it with a new cup, a new promise that we celebrate at God's table. A holy covenant sealed in His blood. A sacred promise where the Lord calls us to stand not in the shadow of the cross, not where God's righteousness and holiness against sin, not where that wrath exists, now we're called to kneel in the shadow of Jesus Christ. The shadow of an empty tomb where grace and mercy and justice and holiness all collide in a marvelous new life for us. And that's what we're doing tonight, that's what Ash Wednesday calls us into. New opportunities and new life to examine ourselves, to be set apart, to be holy and sanctified just as God calls us to do, that we would commune with Christ, that we would belong to him in every part of our being, that in every small thing and all that we would do, our passion for God would be ignited, that we would belong to him, that we would share the hope of the good news that Christ has died for us. And that's what we are celebrating tonight at this table as we come before God, that we depend wholly on the grace of Jesus Christ, that He came and He drank that cup, that we stand in His obedience, and so He's calling us into a restored relationship, into communion with our Heavenly Father. That's what we are celebrating at this table this evening, that He loves us so much that He made a way where there was no way that we could have a reunited relationship with Him. Let's pray. Father, that we would remember what it means to belong to You, that we would remember what it means that we are made new. That the cup of wrath that was meant for us is no more And that as we Come to the table tonight, we come to drink a cup of mercy, of joy, of hope, of life, of grace. God, that you would have more of us, that you would change our lives, that we would be holy as you are holy. That you would set us apart, that in every little bit of our being, we would belong to you, we pray. That would be our prayer, that would be our desire. We pray that tonight, that this Lenten season, you would have more of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?